Hi, everybody. Uh, nice to be with you this morning. Um, thank you for coming. I actually recognize some faces here, so that's kind of exciting. I, uh, I'm from Laguna Beach. I'm usually traveling, and I see Claudia over here. She's been, I think, at the last two or three. We call that talk stalking. <laughs> Just kidding, Claudia. Anyway, she's a lot of fun. Um, in any event, I'm happy to be with you. This is a topic that's near and dear to my heart. I'm very passionate about this. Um, I want to tell you a little bit about me, just so you recognize how I come to this place of being able to talk about this subject. Um, I'm not, this is not my day job. Uh, writing books and all these articles are not my day job. Uh, I'm trained as an attorney, and about 35 years ago, I had a very wealthy family come to me and say, I've got a great suggestion for you. What I'd like you to do is I'd like you to manage our family, if you wouldn't mind. And these people had an extraordinary amount of wealth. And they said, we need someone that we can trust to manage the lawyers and the accountants and the investments and the things. We need someone to oversee our children and the inheritance. And if we die, who our kids go to? And what do we do with all these terrible issues? And it was interesting because I thought, you know, I really do have a heart for family. It's something that I would love to do. And family business office came out of that idea 35 years ago. And so now we have quite a number of families that we do that for. Uh, and we have had the opportunity as a result for me to go into the castle, as I say, in the morning, and then I get to retreat back out into the fields in the afternoon. So what that means is, is that in the morning, uh, the castle door opens, the drawbridge opens, I walk into the family or the, 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 uh, the group that I'm working with, this is bouncing around a little bit here, I might take this off after a minute. Um, that I walk into the, into the castle walls of these families and I get to be in the most extraordinary place. I get to see the most extraordinary things, the things that maybe many of you have, but if not, most of you won't. It's ships and planes and jets and, and vacations and exclusive access to so many things. And I get to see all of that, but then the interesting thing for me is that I don't have to stay there. At the end of the day, I grab my briefcase now my laptop, now my telephone. That's really <laughs> And I get to walk out of the castle, it drops the drawbridge and I go away. So I get to be in a place that I feel is a little bit more healthy during the evening and I get to repair with my family. I get to go out and I get to be normal. So as a result of that, I get to see about everything you can imagine that wealth can do to a family. It doesn't take a lot of wealth. It sometimes is just a small amount of wealth. But in that process, I wrote the first book called Fables of Fortune, What Rich People Have That You Don't Want. And it almost tells the story of kind of a slow burn lottery story, which is the lottery that you know that 94% of all people that win the lottery are bankrupt within five years. Well, families of wealth oftentimes too have a slow burn, which means over a period of generations, you've heard that issue of generation to generation to generation. Something doesn't translate. Something doesn't get all the way through. The mom and dad that earned it, that worked really hard, have a hard time instilling a non-entitled attitude to the kids that they raise. It's really difficult. It's really difficult. And why would you want to do that? Why would you want to teach your kids what it's like to be poor? That's not typical. And yet, we all love our children, and I want to first let my, and take my foot off your throat by saying we all are in a place where we love our kids, and we do all of these things that create entitlement out of loving our kids. Supposedly, we're loving our kids. 
But oftentimes, as we'll talk about, love hijacks your good sense. It hijacks your ability to make good decisions. So anyway, so now we have these families that over a period of 35 years have created this basic laboratory for me. And I began to realize, as I spoke years ago on the first book and began to write for some of these wealth magazines and whatnot, wow, this entitlement thing really doesn't just apply to wealthy families. This entitlement thing goes through all families. And it's a real epidemic in this day and age, hence my word entitlement-mania. Uh, this idea that something has spread, something has weakened our family unit, something where we need to have an awakening and hopefully one by one we can awaken in our own families to realize maybe there's something we can do to help. Maybe there's something we can do to make it a little better. And we're gonna talk about that. So let me give you a phrase. There's a phrase that I really, especially locally on the coast when I'm talking on the coast, I like to talk about this phrase, esse quam videre. It became very meaningful to me years ago. Esse quam videre is a Latin term and it means be rather than seem. Let me repeat that. Be, can you hear me? No. You can't, oh, you can't hear me? Oh my goodness. Mic, can we get the mic kicked up a little bit? Is it really? Okay. Okay, so you know what? Let me just check this. Let me, let me see. Okay. Does that work better if I do that? Okay. We're going to change up right now. Right now. Boy, I'm sorry about that. I didn't realize. I didn't. Now you can hear me well, yes? Did you hear anything that I said? No. Now all of a sudden I'm, I'm hearing you again. This is, uh, wow, I'm just going to stand <laughs> the whole time. I'm just going to stand. I'm not going to look at anybody and I'm going to look like a mushroom for the next half hour. Wow, okay. So, esse quam videre is a Latin term, and it means be rather than seem. And I think it applies to many of us, be rather than seem. It means, I hope that for you, you and your family and your kids are being rather than seeming to be. What that also means, a good example of that, is when you go into a person's garden. My wife is a, is a big gardener in our house. She loves gardening. And if you go to little places in our garden, there will be a, a beautiful little set of chairs and a little table. And it's got a little fountain by it. And when you go next to it, you go, ah, oh, that looks so nice. It looks like a place I'd like to be, but nobody ever sits there. <laughs> it just seems to be a place that's nice to be. And we create that environment, don't we, in our houses, in our homes, we decorate. We want to have something that you look at and you say, wow, that seems so nice. But again, it's really not there to be in, it's just there to seem. And so that's one of the things that we, we do with our children at times, is that we want them to appear to be okay, rather than to be okay. So 
Let me venture out into something that I did that I don't talk about very often. About six years ago, I checked into Betty Ford. Oh my goodness, you say. We've got a needle-pushing, probable alcoholic. I actually don't do that. I actually don't even drink. I never did. Well, there we go. Back. Okay. What I checked into was this. I had heard that Betty Ford, for the people who were in the hospital, had an incredible program for parents of people that were in the hospital, people that were there for treatment. These other parents would check into a local hotel, and they would go through the same process of being together. You're sequestered for seven days. You actually pay to be in this prison as a person that's a non-alcoholic, non-drug addict, but you're a parent of. And what I wanted to do is I just wanted to be there for seven days with other parents to experience what they were experiencing with kids of addiction. And it, it's quite a sad, where are you going to ask? It's quite a sad, wow, this doesn't happen too often. Um, okay, can you hear me if I talk like this? Wow, okay, we're going to stage three. Uh, all right, so in any event, what I did was, is I checked in and I basically decided I was going to find out what the parents were going through of addicted children. And what I found out was, is that the codependence that occurs in addiction cases where parents oftentimes become the best friend and the enabler of their children, the addicted parents, is just a more severe measure of exactly what I was seeing in the world of entitlement that parents, in order to take away the pain from their children, in order to avoid their children repeating some of the mistakes they made, were actually going around like a parent finding the bottles and putting the bottles in the trash. They were going along and they were trying to avoid their kids falling in these pitfalls. I labeled that in an article that I wrote, not a helicopter parent, which is the old term, not very technical, right? I labeled it drone parenting. <laughs> Today's parents are drone parents. The difference is, is that drone parents are much more strategic. Drone parents are going out ahead. They're searching out the dangers that, uh, that await their children in the future and destroying them. <laughs> making sure no harm is going to come to the kids. We need to drone, it's much more strategic. Fire a small missile, take that problem out. Don't let the kid even recognize that they ever had a problem coming. So let me retreat back to entitlemania. I define entitlemania as children who believe they should have anything that they want without having the belief they have to put any effort in to get it. And let me repeat that. Kids believe that believe they should have anything they want, but they don't understand that they that they have to put any effort in to get it. And you say, well, yeah, they should know better. But let me tell you that kids are like goldfish. They really, really are like goldfish. Kids will eat and take and receive anything you give them. Just like a goldfish. My granddaughter has got a goldfish, and she's supposed to feed it once a day. And every time she stands above the goldfish, it comes right up and it's waiting to feed. 
and she feeds it. If she feeds it an hour later, it will actually eat again. And if she feeds it every hour, it will die. Because that's what goldfish do. They really don't know any better, but they know the instinct of eating, and they, so they eat as they go. And it's incumbent on the parent to decide how much of that you're going to transmit to your kids. How much are you going to feed the goldfish? Because they don't know any better. Hence, the second thing I want you to take away, entitlemania, the, the definition, the second thing is that, unfortunately, we have to take responsibility, not 50%, for where your kids might be or where you're concerned, but 100%. Because kids don't know the difference. And when you're going through life, if you start with them at two and three and four and five, and you make it easy for them then, they will expect it to be the same way as they get older. And so you basically create a situation where you've got goldfish that you're feeding all the time. This is our fault as parents. Entitlemania is caused by two things, and that's what you're gonna take away today. Two things. What can I do? Can I fix it? Yes. Can I fix it at 16? Yes. Can I fix it at 30? Yes. Can I fix it at 50 or 60? I've got 50 and 60 year old kids that I represent. Mom and dad are 70 and 80 and 90. Can I fix it there? Yes. Is it more painful the longer you wait? Yes. Start young, when they're young, is it easier for you? Yes. So let me talk about the two different causes of entitlement. I'm getting close to a speaker. I'm kind of getting used to this right now. Can everybody still hear? Okay, so until that gets ready. So the two causes are these. One, giving too much. And two, taking away the struggle. One, giving too much. And second, taking away the struggle. Those are the only two things you have to work on. And you can repair what's happening to your kids or may, have, may happen to your kids in the future. What I mean by the idea of giving too much is that, and that goldfish, goldfish metaphor, you know, we really don't know at times. We don't really realize and register how much we are giving our children. In this type of community on our coastline, it's really difficult not to give your kids too much because everybody else is doing it and it looks normal to you. But I can tell you that when I tour in the Midwest in towns that, you know, the average income is $50,000, $60,000 per year, the kids don't have and can't have. And so one of the elements of the entitlement issue is taken away. And you think, okay, well, that's, that's a good thing. They must not be entitled. Not true, because the second element is taking away the struggle, and every parent does that. Every parent wants to minimize and decrease the amount of struggle their kids are going through. So let's go back to, to giving too much. What does that mean, giving too much? Well, an example for me is the idea that everything you give your child, you're taking something away. That's kind of the hallmark for me of that whole concept. Everything you're giving your child, you're taking something away. And you say nonsense. That's just nonsense. I mean, not everything. Okay, but what I'm asking you is not to stop giving, but what I'm suggesting is maybe in this process you ought to evaluate 
what it is you're giving and the possible result of giving that thing. It may just be an allowance. We had a discussion, Claudia, yesterday about allowance. You know, what's too much? What's too much? Should I give my kid this? Should I make him work this? Should I give him, just give him money every, every week? And I asked this question to the group. I said, what kind of allowance did you make for doing chores? And almost all of them said, none. What do you mean? Well, we were expected to do chores. We were expected to do certain things. We had to contribute to our household. Mom and dad just said, do it. Well, and you're doing what? Well, yeah, but I mean, there's things are so expensive now and they want this and they want that. And so we're giving an allowance. We, we feel we need to get, well, are they doing their chores? Well, yeah, pretty much. Maybe, maybe not, maybe not. And so this thing goes on, this, this thing where it's easier to let this go by than to do something about it. So there's a good friend of mine, Bob Woodson, and I don't know if you know that name, but he's a wonderfully, just a wonderfully gifted human being, African-American, who lives in Washington, D.C., 82 years old, Martin Luther King mate at the time, and now he runs for 60 years a thing called the Woodson Center in Washington, D.C., and I love this man because he basically tries to help the poor his whole life. He says, in the process of giving our children everything we didn't have, we forget to give our kids what we did have. In giving our kids everything we didn't have, we forget to give our kids what we did have. And oftentimes what we had, we had it tough. We had things that happened. We were expected to do chores. We didn't get things for free. You had to go to mom and dad and say, hey, can I have X amount of dollars to go to the show? And they could say yes, and they said no. And if they said no, you might get by with one question of why not? And you'd get, because I'm your mom and dad, and I say no. And that used to be enough. Somewhere in this process, we've decided that kids are able to debate us on any issue they choose. And so it's very difficult for us to get to a place where we're saying, hey, we're parents, we say no because we say no. And so we wind up giving too much to the kids. And what the giving too much does is it takes away incentive. It really does take away incentive. And this happens at all ages. It happens at young ages and it happens at older ages. Um, there, there's a story that I love that just happened and I'm gonna say a name because and I don't usually use names, but she gave me permission to do this. Talk about kind of crazy incentivizing kids. You know, but, but the rewards of that happening. They're, my wife's best friend is a young lady named Ann Nicholson. She lives up in Florida. I don't know if you know the name Ann Nicholson, anybody here. Okay, well Ann Nicholson's maiden name is Walker and the Walker family is third generation, owns a, a bank called Farmers and Merchants. And they've been around forever. It's a local bank that started in Long Beach. That family has everything. The interesting thing is that Ray Lynn, her daughter went to nursing school. She paid for half the schooling to go to college herself, which I thought was a little excessive, but mom said, I want these kids to find their own way. And she got through nursing school. And after being here for about a year and a half or two years, Ray Lynn, six months ago announced I'm going to Kenya as a nurse to be on a mission. And mom said, great, I love it. How long are you going to be gone? She said, I had to commit to three years. 
she said, wow, three years gone? Like, yeah, well, I'll be back for various things, but I have to stay there three years, and then I have the option to commit to two more. And that was really tough for a single, beautiful 26-year-old daughter. And she said, but I need $15,000 per year is my raise to stay there. What would you do? What would you do? I'm, I'm kind of like the guy, I'm the authority on this and I'm reaching for my wallet, you know, kind of like, this girl deserves everything. This is a wonderful girl. This is, this is what we all want in our family. This is what we want. But no, she said, mom said, go raise it. And daughter said, okay, because she'd been used to that. When she came to me and she came to her friends and she said, I need to raise such and such and this and that, I was so moved by that independence that I not only became a sponsor of hers for the next three years, but when she had a going away party, I went to her and I pulled her aside. And I said, Raylan, you're going over there. She said, oh my gosh, thanks to you and all these people, I've got enough already for like a year and a half and I can raise more money later. And I said, but I want you to do more than that, Raylan. I have so much faith in you now at what you've done that I want you to be my tip of the spear. I want you to go to Africa. I want you to look for other opportunities where you can infuse money to be able to do good things. And I will support that venture for you. So I want you, if you need 20 or 30 or $50,000 to go into a place, I wanna be your source. And I've got other people that have got sources too. I want you to look around. She started to cry and it became so meaningful for her because as a result, and this is the unforeseen portion of giving too much and then trying to be you know, a little bit tighter, is that she, as a result of mom saying, go do it on your own, which I thought was pretty tough, raised her own money. And she not only has me, but there's a couple of other people that help sponsor her too, that are now using her as an emissary to go find things over there that they can then infuse capital. She's become her own nonprofit going forward. And she's so excited that she might be able to identify a need and go, I can fix that too. And I can fix that too. All of that comes oftentimes from just that initial saying no. You've got to do this stuff on your own. The second cause of entitlement is taking away the struggle. And this one affects everybody. I've spoken uh, in Washington, D.C., where I had a woman that lived in the projects. An African-American woman came up to me and she said, I've got three kids, I'm on welfare, I've got no husband, and I live in the projects. She said, do you know my kids don't go out of the house without $130 sneakers on? Because I want them to have that vision of people seeing them wearing these expensive, expensive shoes. I want them to have that. I need them to have that. And yet she doesn't hardly have enough money to put food on the table. So at all levels, this idea of taking away the struggle happens. It is, um, it is a fault that happens with not only you, but it is something that happens to all of us, to me too. And I don't want to put you in a position where you believe that I'm sitting up here and I've raised the perfect kids, right? Nothing happened to me. Bad. There's several things, and, and Claudia, I'm going to avoid the one I talked about yesterday just to have something new for you. 
But my story is, is that one of my two kids, Todd, my middle child, was at a place where he was ready to go to school and graduate, go to USC. And he went there and he, the first child had launched great, had gone to the University of San Diego and on to law school. He had a budget, he lived on that budget, everything was great, we were happy. The second one goes, and he's a really smart kid, we're very proud of him, and he went to school, he went to SC. And lo and behold, he gets into his fourth year of SC, and I kind of notice that he's flying around with his fraternity, they're going to ball games in Florida, and they're going to ball games in Notre Dame, and I'm assuming he's hitching a ride from somebody. But as a matter of fact, what he was doing was, in college, they offer you credit cards. And he decided that he was going to create his own budget, unknown to mom and dad. And away he went and had four years of college at SC. It was really unusual to me that I didn't know this and that he then went right into a job where most of the kids kind of took this time off in the summer. He was two weeks absent and he went right into a job and he worked there immediately and he's working long hours at a capital, he had doing a, working for Wilshire Capital. And I noticed that he had roommates, he was living with like three guys and it was like kind of weird to me that he was going, getting so proud that he was getting a great start, but he did that for about a year and a half. And finally Todd came to me and he says, Dad, I've got a very serious problem. And I said, what's that? He said, well, I've got this debt. And I created it in college. I lived a little bit too high, but I had these seven credit cards that they gave me. And I have this debt. And I'm a pretty frugal guy, and I'm thinking to myself, if he says anything north of $5,000, I'm going to strangle him until he is dead. <laughs> and he looked at me and he says, it's a little worse than that. And I said, how much worse than that is? He said, $48,000. Now what do you do? Now what do you do? You've got a child that's got great grades. He's now got through SC. He wants to go to business school. What do you do? What do you do? I'm back looking for the checkbook again, right? Mentally, my first thought was, my wife says, look, this is a good kid. This kid's going right to work. You cut the check. Let's get him back to zero. That's the best thing we can do. Well, I couldn't stand up here in front of all of you. <laughs> tell you I made him go back to zero. So I talked to him and I said, here's what I can do for you, Todd. I can get you a loan at the bank. And he's paying $2,400 a month, he was, on the all the debt, just the interest alone, $2,400 a month. So he was barely eating. I said, I can get you a loan that will take that $48,000 out, but here's our deal. You pay $700 a month on that, which is now when you go from 24 down to six or 7%. You pay $700 a month on that, and here's our deal. I don't care what you do, don't you ever miss that payment. If you do, as far as I'm concerned, your only other alternative is to go bankrupt. And that's on you, and I meant it at the time. I mean, I had to sit down, I wasn't mad, I just said, you made this bed, you fix it. And my wife wanted to kill me. You want to kill him. And now, you know, I mean, because, you know, as parents, we do this thing, right? I mean, you start out when you're raising kids and mom and dad are kind of standing here together and the kids are there. 
And then the kids start to do little things and mom's training and dad's training are different. And mom says, well, you know something, I think we ought to do it this way to make them best. And dad says, well, that's a little harsh or vice versa. I think we ought to do it this way. And first thing you know, your kids are eight or nine years old and dad's over here going, you know something, you're always the tough person. I think we ought to go this way. And first thing you know, here's mom in this corner and here's dad in this corner. And one of them is saying, give it to them. And the other one's saying, don't give them anything. You know, don't give them anything. And you have this almost divorce war going on in the middle of a loving family. Because everyone kind of goes to opposite ends of the ring. They polarize their raising skills with their kids. And so here I am with Todd. And the deal is his, what do you want to do? He says, well, dad, if I'm going to do that, I'm going to have to sleep on a couch. I'm actually going to have to get into a cheaper situation, blah, 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 blah. I agreed to do it. And I said, one more thing. If and when you ever get a different job and you get a bonus, if and when whatever you do, business school or otherwise, you got to keep that thing paying payment. You got to keep that going. And at the end, you have to pay it off. You get a bonus somewhere. Don't you ever tell me you got a $10,000 bonus and went out and bought a car. You pay that debt until it's gone. I promise. That's what I'll do. So two years later, he got accepted to Yale to go to business school. And he went into the dean and he said, I have to turn down the application, the acceptance. Why? Now can you imagine my wife, right? Because I've got a $700 a month bill and with the tuition, and we have a sharing agreement with our kids, so we paid half of their stuff. He had to get loans for the other half of his schooling. And you can do whatever you want. I don't think that there's any magic there, but that was the deal. But he's got this $700 debt and he can't afford to pay. The Dean of Yale said to him, we have an emergency loan for situations like this. We can actually get you through this next two years with that $700. Please come to our school, graduate from our school, which he did. So two years, and let me tell you something, an extravagant young man at a later age in life is learning some horrible lessons about sleeping on couches and going to school where most of his compatriots going to Yale have got the fancy apartments and stuff, and he doesn't have that. And he's walking and he's doing those things. And I gotta tell you, just so you get it, am I that hard? It was horrible for me. I hated going on that website every month and watching to make sure that 700 was paid. It was like, you just wait until he doesn't pay that. And, I'm gonna call him, you know? and it's like, and the mother's looking going, I hope he paid it, you know, I hope he paid it. And so we go through these years, this is years of battle. What the heck? Who wants to do that? Isn't it easier? Couldn't we just pen the check? It would have been better. It would have been done, I'm sure, but not. So he got to the end of schooling all the other kids kind of took time off. They had, they had the ability to kind of rest a little bit. Todd needed to get to work right away. That was in 2009. There were lots of jobs on Wall Street, being sarcastic, in 2009 after the crash. There were no jobs on Wall Street. And he applied to so many different places and he actually took postcards after his application or after his interview and he would put them he didn't want to spend money on the stamp. Now here's a kid that was going to bowl games in Orange, you know, the Orange Bowl down in Florida, and he doesn't want to pay for a stamp, so he's putting these cards in the company mailbox with no stamp. 
so he could thank the interviewer. And believe it or not, J.P. Morgan on Wall Street was only giving out 33 jobs, usually 250, and Todd got one of those jobs. And when he started on Wall Street in downtown New York, he called me on the phone and he said, Dad, he said, I've got something I gotta do. He says, I know I promised, I want you to get online, which we both did. And he said, J.P. Morgan gave me a signing bonus. He says, my debt remaining is now $27,000. After tax, the bonus is $30,000. He said, I know what I promised. So we both got online together and we looked at this screen and he says, pop, and all that money went into that debt. And it went to zero. And we both watched it together. I gotta tell you, I felt like he was gonna have a heart attack. <laughs> I really did. It was really difficult to watch that because I had put him through so much during that time. But in that process, he had learned so much. He had become a different person than he was before. And so that struggle really carved him into a new person. If you saw him today, now later with two kids, and he's got his own, he, he's got his own startup here locally, he's come back from New York. He's a frugal, frugal, careful guy, and it's very meaningful to him, the things that he buys and what he purchases. So he's so very, very careful. Do you know what the aggravating part is? Some of you are from my community. You go to my wife and tell her this story. She'll say, we did it together. <laughs> it's so aggravating. It's like, no, we didn't. You know, We almost left each other over this. It was so hard. But now she gets it and she understands it. But interestingly, my wife came from a very difficult background. And so, you know, a lot of times when people grow up, with things that they, where they didn't have and things were really difficult, they don't want their kids to experience any of that. So think about children and the analogy of a palm tree. And this is something I want you to hang on to. I don't know that you know about palm trees, but when you see these cat five winds on these islands, you see that palm trees, while houses and structures are like blowing into the ocean, these palm trees will go completely horizontal. And after the storm, the majority of them pop back up. It's remarkable. I mean, they're skinny little tall things. They should just snap off like a toothpick and off they go. But they don't. What happens? A palm tree, when it's very, very young, begins to get buffeted by the wind. And the scales, the skin on a palm tree, when it's buffeted by the wind, actually breaks small little fissures, it breaks, it cracks, little micro cracks throughout the skin of a palm tree. And then it scars. And then it grows taller, and the next winds come, maybe more severe. The palm tree's skin again breaks, micro cracks all the way down, and then it scars. And by the time it reaches 100 feet tall, it has been through so many winds, the skin has broken so many times, it is repaired by the scarring that happens in nature so many times that it can withstand anything. So what we do with our children is we take that palm tree as a seedling and we pull it back indoors. And we shut the doors and we put nice glass house like this and we grow it right here, small, nice little palm tree 
We give it every bit of nutrient we possibly can. We want it to grow. Just talk to it, grow, grow, grow. We want it to grow. We don't let any of the winds touch because why? I can prevent it. I can put this glass structure. I can prevent it. And that palm tree doesn't experience the winds. We grow it indoors and we let it get to 10 feet tall and 15 foot tall. And we're so proud. I mean, it's just our palm tree, right? Best friend palm tree, right? Best friend. And that palm tree grows and it's indoors and it gets up to this level where all of a sudden you're so proud. Look at my palm tree. You might, you might have several palm trees, but look at my palm tree. And you get to 18 years old, you get to that palm tree being 100 foot tall. And now you open those glass doors and you take that palm tree that you've grown indoors and you push it out into the wind, right, like that. And you let that thing stand and you go, best of luck, go do your thing. Look what we've done as parents, oh my gosh, it's the perfect palm tree. <laughs> and the first cat one, wind that comes, snaps it right at the trunk, and it dies. That's been done. The palm tree has to experience the process of breaking and scarring in order to become whole and resilient to what's coming. So I can tell you that as the future comes to your kids, you have to ask that question. Do you really truly want to pull those kids indoors or should you take the dynamic of welcoming the struggle, allowing some of this stuff that naturally occurs, and it's little things, it's not big things, it's little things, but allowing kids to experience and work out the details of their solution, not your solution, not their best friend. By the way, I've always said, if you call your daughter or son your best friend, primary indicator of a problem, <laughs> primary. Don't say that. I've told my middle or my my, my uh, youngest son, Russell, at a point in his life, I said, what do you consider me, son? He said, I consider you my best friend. And I said, good, I want to terminate that relationship. <laughs> and after I decided to be a parent, which is sometimes not fun, but it's a responsibility that we've got, it really strengthened him into the future for things that he had coming in his life, which were enormous talked about in the book, you'll have to read it, chapter one, about Russell. So again, we're back to this idea of the palm tree and wanting to grow that indoors, and the desire that you just have to begin to recognize that allowing these little things to happen, allowing adversity to hit your kids, and instead of being ahead of them with an expectation here, with your kids' performance being here, which turns to resentment over time because they don't like being pushed like this, especially as they get older, that sometimes just tucking down underneath them and lifting them and being a supportive and affirming person to allow them to not only fail but rise up is what it's all about. Because if you don't begin to let them feel the winds young, then the winds are tougher as they get older and they get nothing but tougher. And a lot of times the, the the number one problem with some of my families that I work with is the kids at ages of 18 and 20 say, I don't know what I want to do. I don't know what I, I, I mean, I don't know. Get a job. You know, get a job. That's what I did. Get a job. Start to find out what you want to do. Find out what you don't like. Go find something and say, I do not want to do that. 
And as a parent, you might want to be in that place where you say, hey, go out and find things you don't want to do. Just go try things you don't want to do. Why would I do that? Because you need to find out what you do want to do. Because ultimately, you want to create a passion with your children. You want to get them to find their own mountain, not your mountain, their mountain. And as a parent, what we hope to do is we want to encourage them to learn to climb their own mountain, to witness and watch them fall, to be there to help them recover, because recovery is what life is a lot about. You must learn to recover, and then begin to climb their own mountain again. And when you begin to find out that your mountain really, to be honest with you, is your mountain, and you kind of don't know what your kids want to do, there's a, very, there's a local family here, so I really get worried when I talk locally because someone might know them. And I won't use the name, but they've been friends for a long time and they know that I talk about this. Is they basically decided their daughter in high school was just not gonna make it. Just wasn't doing what they wanted. They wanted her in college. They eventually put her to college. She went one year and she couldn't do it. She said, what do you wanna do? She said, I wanna do hair. I wanna do hair. Well, that's unacceptable in the coastal communities to do hair. You have to be more. If you're gonna do hair, you have to have an MBA and then do hair. <laughs> Don't just do hair, I mean, come on. So now what happens is, is this daughter starts to rebel. And she comes home with a big taboo in their family, which was tattoos. And she comes home with a tattoo and mom and dad flip out. She's now post one year of college. They're distraught. They've decided this gal needs to go to reform school. She needs to go to a local rent a prison or something because she's just become horrible. So they kicked her out of the house. They kicked her out of the house. She went away locally, up north a little bit, and started to do hair. And within about a year, she actually wound up being so good at her passion that she wound up hooking up with a studio that did hair. And she got better and better at doing hair. And she would come home and embarrass the family with all her multicolored hair, and she'd have blue coming out, but it would be all these braids, and the family's just go, oh my gosh. And I'd get a call, and oh my gosh, she's lost. She's just lost, right? And she continued to do hair. And all of a sudden, she started to meet some very famous people. And those famous people coddled her and loved her and they became very good friends. And so she all of a sudden got to look in windows that nobody gets to look in. Some of the stars, the most famous stars that you would know, she gets to begin to look in those windows and it becomes kind of normal for her because she's earned her way there. And then she started bringing these stars home. And she would come home on the weekends and she would bring so-and-so with her that was her, and, and mom and dad would be like, oh gosh, you know, like, holy smoke, she's, this, this movie star's in our house, we can't believe it. Now you know what mom and dad do? That's my daughter. <laughs> That's my daughter. She made it. She did it. She did it on her own. See, we don't know what mountain our kids are looking to climb. And sometimes the toughest part as a parent is to help them find that mountain, but not give them the answers to which mountain so let me leave you with this story, a little thing that is very personal to me. My mother and father died when I was young, relatively young. I was 34 when mom died, 36 when dad died. And they were buried, we were attending at the time for about 25 years, the Crystal Cathedral up here that now is the Christ Cathedral, the big towering thing in Garden Grove. 
And Schuler had a cemetery. And he had nine family plots. And I wanted my mom and dad, I love them to death. I wanted them to have their own plot with a Watts family on it, and it's, it's there today. And Schuler came to me and he said, look at Richard, you're gonna need to have, there's a big marble plaque. You're gonna need to engrave something on that. It's gonna last for centuries. Gosh, pressure from author. It's like, that's horrible. I'm just gonna cheat, go get a Bible verse. It'll be good enough, done. But I knew that wasn't gonna happen. And so for weeks, I struggled with the idea, what would I wanna say to generations in the future? What would I wanna give to them? What would, what would be the most important thing I could think of to tell future generations? And one morning I got up and wrote it out almost verbatim, and there it is carved in marble and it's been there for almost 30 years. It said, prevail upon your children that they may know faith, family, our tradition, and the warmth of embrace, for they are both your seed and harvest. Let me say that again. I said, prevail upon your children. I didn't say, ask them and just make it all fun and nice and everything i said it's our responsibility as parents to make them recognize how important the things that we have to teach are prevail upon your children that they may know faith in our world whatever your faith practicing faith it's an incredibly necessary thing for us to fill in the blanks when mom and dad aren't around and when mom and dad have passed away there needs to be something that you hang on to Family, which is the most important thing to us next to our faith, which means the family unit is really what used to be, right? It always used to be about the journey and not the destination for our family. It didn't matter where we were going to end up. It didn't matter where the kids were graduating college, where our family was going to vacation five years from now, what we wanted to look like and what house we wanted to be in. It was about, let's just journey together. Family. Our tradition, it says which means what makes you special? How do you differentiate yourself from the next family? We have our tradition. And I want my family to know that. I want my kids to know what our traditions are. And the warmth of embrace, it says, which means hug your kids. For goodness sakes, I, my boys are now in their 30s, all of them. Everyone in my family embraces, and we have, we have very big embraces, and it's really important to us to be there. For they are both your seed, that is where you all are now. You're planting seed, you're growing kids, and harvest. These are what you are going to leave behind. These kids are the future of your family. And how strong do you want them to be? Who do you want them to be? Do you want them to be people that understand their own passions and feel life is a gift? Or do you want them to be people that really feel they never got it quite right? And in that process, my prayer for all of you is that you all find the harvest that you're looking for. Because for me, to sit back now at this stage, and believe me, we've got lots of, lots of giant, you know, destructive fires and things in the past, things that have happened. It's not been all perfect, but it's gotten to a place where it's so rewarding because we've survived all and the kids have become a harvest for us. I'm hopeful that each and every one of you get the harvest that you're looking for. Thank you so much for having me. And uh, thank you.
we have a mic now? No. Yeah. Um, is this working now? This is really, if anybody has a question. I don't, oh, that does work. Okay. So I'll let somebody work this around. Somebody that can carry this to somebody that has a question. Who might have a question here? You have to really talk into that mic. Anybody have any questions? Yes. I'm a loud talker, so that's why I don't need this. So I think I have a question that might relate to a lot of us. Um, it's not important to say, but I grew up having to do chores, never giving an allowance, and working from a very young age. But raising kids now, um, it's difficult because a lot of our kids are very athletic and very dedicated to their sports, and not because we push for A's, but you've got these kids that are overachievers academically. They take all these advanced courses. And we find in our house, a lot of times, there's just not enough time for our child, or I mean, I have children, but I'm just gonna talk about my oldest, for example, to, to do chores. There's just not enough time in the day with, with the sports and the academic time frame. But here's a kid that when we say, if, if she's free, unload the dishwasher and she does it without a struggle. So she's willing to help out when she can, but we struggle with the chores because there's just not a t enough time. So my question is, you, you talked about the importance of having these, ki these kids learn to work and participate and be a part of the household and do chores. But is it good enough to say these kids are learning responsibility from what they're doing outside of the home, and they're, you know, they're showing commitment? And I don't know, like, are, like, should we find time for chores? Or if this kid is not just like, you know, playing Xbox or Fortnite, and you know, I mean, if they're really using their time wisely, I, I guess. Chores are really a struggle with, with academics and sports, and I think a lot of families would have that same struggle. Did everybody hear the question? Yeah. So I would tell you this, that there is no question that we are currently living in a, and this is countrywide, that we're living in a place where all these features like phones have, have given us the hope that we would have more time available, because it used to take more time to do the stuff that we did 10 or 20 or 30 years ago than it does with these conveniences that are here now. But what we found as an anomaly is that it's actually, there's less and less time available to parents and it's the number one complaint that all of my kids have. And so I would tell you that chores are not the measure. I was asked about allowances and what you should do with allowances in this particular case. And I was, I was adverse to the idea of giving kids everything that they want that there has to be some positive type of an exchange with regard to earning. But I would tell you this, that it is always incumbent on parents, you, to begin to tailor your family world to be about you and your husband and your family and not just kid-centric. Because we've come to a place now where everybody is molding the family around the kids. And I actually had a, a pastor that said to me when I got married, treat your kids like they're guests in your home. 
That's really, I say that sometimes out loud to people, and they just go, oh, oh my God. I mean, yes. But let me tell you something. They will not be there forever. And so you have to begin to recognize that these are people coming through, and your job from 0 to 18 is to get them equipped and then launch them. But that's not what most everyone in this room is feeling. You know, the, this is kind of like a collector car. You know, you're going to start it when it's young, you're going to keep it, and then you're going to keep rejuvenating, and it's going to stay with you forever and ever and ever. I can tell you, the more I pushed away my kids, the more they came back. And many of the kids that I know that parents glummed on and didn't find the time and didn't force the time, didn't look for, for time, those kids were less harmonious with the family. They had more desire to kind of get away from that, right? So I would tell you that, you know, there's no secret measure here about whether or not your kids are replacing sports and becoming responsible. You're the gauge of that, but you know that too. You know if your kid's responsible, and, and I'll tell you a good way you can police this, and I would invite you to do this, and none of you will do it. <laughs> That's always fun. We used to raise families by community. When I go down the street, let me tell you something, I know the name of every person on my street growing up. If I misbehaved, or if I was out of line, or if I was disrespectful, if I showed laziness, I had Mr. Solomon, Mr. Ingravaya, Mr. McCarthy, Mr. Dixon, all these people would call up and say, right? How would you react if one of your neighbors called you and said, you know, your son or daughter just isn't doing it right? You know, doesn't work anymore. It's not even permitted. So one of the great gauges to see whether your kid is responsible, whether you're, whether your gauge of your kids, you may think they're perfect and they may be, but ask a neighbor, ask a friend, get in a circle. You know, the, the, there, there are circles here of women that are together and license your buddy your friend to say, what do you think of my family? And I'm going to give you immunity and I will love you afterward. But just do me a favor. Be honest with me. Is my kid as perfect as I think? <laughs> and if you give them immunity, I promise you, you'll be surprised. Because they're saying things anyway. Good or bad. And there's a lot of times I watch people praising other kids. And it doesn't mean that they're still affirming those kids. You know, in my day, I used to get affirmed and criticized by a lot of different parents. And I kind of knew where the boundaries were. And that's all part of that learning process of learning the boundaries. You got to let the kid move around and figure out where the, where the touch points are. It's like a minefield. He's got to know, not there, not there, not there. I've got to learn my way through, right? That's all part of this process of growing up. So when, I, when my kids were young, I actually went to, they were at Troy. And they were both all in the baccalaureate school, and they were all in the tech program, and they were working their butts off. And I went to Chuck Maruka at the time, and I said, you must stop this. And he, and he said, wow, you're kidding me. I said, we go on vacation at Christmas time, and my kids are doing four hours of homework a night on Christmas. You have to stop this. And if you don't, I'll find enough people to make you stop. And he goes, you know, you're right, Rich. It really was. And he actually changed the program at Troy while we were there where there was no homework assignable during the any vacation that we took. Okay, well that's a parent, right? That's a parent doing something to free up what was important to us and that's that family time. Does that answer your question kind of? Yeah. Okay, good. Anybody else? Yes, please. Okay. 
So I have a five-year-old and a two-year-old, and I'm leaving here already feeling overwhelmed. Like I'm gonna be like, screw it. <laughs> what? Um, so my two-year-old was learning like he's in preschool, we need cleanup time and like different responsibilities. My five-year-old fights me. She's a girl, so she fights me every. If I say the sky is blue, she'll say no. But you know, like it's just a struggle with it every. So at times I want to just cave in and do stuff myself if she doesn't want to clean up and then I'll say, well, I'll help you or I'll say, okay, we'll do chores and spend our money. But I feel like now after talking to you that she's going to be an entitled crazy person. <laughs> <laughs> so like at what age are they, I guess I'm trying to figure out because she doesn't totally understand things yet. So like at what age? What do I do? <laughs> well, I, I would tell you this, that I, I've nationally said that I believe entitlement in, begins in the womb. And people just went, wow, that's horrible. That must be some pro-life thing or whatever. Not at all. <laughs> what, what I really do think is I think that the parents begin with this sense of, oh my gosh, this blessed thing is coming into the universe. And I'm going to do everything I possibly can from organic cribs to organic mattresses. I'm going to paint organic this and that. And then the dog's going to poop in the carpet, and I'm going to ignore that when my kid's crawling over that. You know, it's like, it's so crazy. And I would tell you this, that first of all, one, stop reading the Internet for what you should do right. Because you know. I mean, you know. You, you were raised, you know. Second, I think you have to get to a place where... No is no, and what, a lot of the exhaustion that comes with parents is this idea that they have to explain to the kids exactly why they're doing what they're doing. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's that's a great idea. And the fact is, is that you know I, I look back on some of my friends that had the most objectionable kids. They were just horrible, and I would watch them again. Ask your friend what you're doing. Ask your friend. Because I would watch from the outside. I just talked to this guy yesterday. And, and his, you know, his son was just this guy. I mean, he was literally always causing problems. And he got to seventh grade, and he got thrown out of school a couple of times. And I kept going, that kid's going to be a star. And his dad went, he's going to be dead. <laughs> he had two perfect kids and one bad kid. And, he, and it was always that process, and it never stopped. It never stopped. He just, I remember I walked in when the kid was 13, and he was a big kid. And I just walked in the door and I said, hey, Dan, how you doing? Open the door. And I saw Evan flying in the air across into a sofa that was at least 10 feet away. And we nicknamed him Air Evan from then on because he literally was so. But dad and mom had this horrible thing. Oh, my God. It was just, and the other kids were so good. But the truth is, I love now, as I talked to him yesterday, he lives out of state, is being able to say to him, look what he became. You just had to let it, you had to just tolerate that. You had to stand your ground. You had to be real about what your expectations were. You know, you can't do this, can't do that, no is no. But he wound up going, playing football. He was a tight end for Stanford, went to Stanford, wound up playing national football, played for the Browns, Evan Moore. And, uh, and his sister married Nick Foles, the MVP in the court of, uh, of the Super Bowl. I mean, those are, you know, they've got all these people around them now. And it's an incredible success story. But if you ask that parent, those parents about, the process, it never stopped being this, this give and take and push and stuff. And, and when you begin to say, oh, they're doing just great, I'm just, you know, they're all compliant, it's usually because you're giving in. So I don't have a great solution for you to say, you know, this is what you do, but I can tell you that oftentimes it's parenting less 
and allowing the winds to come in and actually affect your kids more than they do. The bullying and the teasing and this, it doesn't mean you go get a lawyer and sue the school. You know, you've got to teach your kids to deal with the difficulties. And if you can't find the difficulties here, then take them somewhere for a month that have difficulties and let them work in those places. Let them do some mission work in those places. So, yes. So you've got somebody that's misbehaved and, and the, the scummy boyfriends come in. Is this a daughter? Okay, so now the scummy girls come in. And she's basically going to enable him forever. How old is your son? Yeah, see, I, I really do believe now life is going to take its course with him. And you can do all of the wise talking that you possibly want. But ultimately, he's going to have to find his own result of that enabling. In other words... That might become a 30 or 40 year marital deal. You're done. You're done. If you're, I told my kids at 18, I took each one of them, I sat down, each of my boys, and I said, things are gonna change as of now. You're going to college. Here's the change, here's the dynamic. I've told you what to do, and I've given you advice up till 18. I will never tell you what to do again. And I will never give you advice unless you ask. That's hard. I mean, I really, I really what's that? I, I didn't hear you. My wife? Yeah. I hate you. Like that. <laughs> yeah. But she loves me. But in any event, you know, there comes a time with that parenting where you just have to let that take its course. And you need to be there without being, I told you so. But there's another thing. You know, I told you that that, that girl was going to be bad for you. But, you know, you're really looking to affirm them and figure out what, what did that do for you? What, what, how did you learn from that? You know, if they ask. But if you're the mom that's in there picking, you know, they're not going to ask. And in fact, it may be because of the picking a little bit that he likes to have somebody that's giving him, you know, the things that he wants. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, it's tough. You know, I, I look at, there's a lot of families that have drug addicted kids and I watch those families and oh my gosh, we've had that in my families, meaning my families that I represent. And it's a horrible thing to watch mom and dad get to the point where they have to realize I need to recognize this kid could die and very probably will die. He's on heroin, they're off, they've been in rehab three times. I've got, I've got 50 of these stories. And, and it's only when they get to that point that they give the, the kid a chance to really bottom out and begin to grab hold of something. And then when they wind up working at a yogurt shop instead of working you know, for Wall Street, the parents gotta be okay with that. 
You know, that's kind of where they got to, right? You can't always be pressing on, you should have done more, you should have done more. You've got to let them find their own mountain, how, wherever that is. It may not be as tall as yours. Yeah. Hi. So this is a question, it is that uh, in my, uh, my aunt actually observed this as a grandparent saying like, they're working you guys. But there's that delicate balance when the kids go like, I'm so stressed out, I can't handle it. And this whole suicide, phenomenon that's going on right. and as a parent you freak out like you don't know whether to protect them you don't know where to push them harder you don't know whether and I know that having that um, you know work-life balance is good what's going to make them stronger in the long run and be that strong palm tree however we all I think we all are so frightened by this stuff that's going on that they might break early right right so there's two things there one that I really do think that it's important that parents understand that schools are pressing your kids in high school tremendously. They're pressing them because they want the stats of so many getting into Harvard and so many getting into Yale and so many getting in, so many getting in. So it's incumbent on you all to, to get in their face. Uh, at my club, you know, the, the club that I'm a country club that I'm a member of, the, you know, the son just killed himself, same type of thing. John's son, he's our president. And I actually had those suicide notes, they're in my phone and I, I had them within a day. And it's amazing to me how much bitterness there was towards the high school and nobody to talk to apparently, nobody to communicate and let that out. So I think there's a two part to this. One, the parents have got to activate and get to these principles as I did and say, you know, you guys need to be more sensitive to what's going on. But I think there's a second part that's probably more important and you can do more. The, the, the one, you're, you're, you're dependent on the school doing something and they may not, but I can tell you this, if I, and I don't need this show of hands, but if I showed hands here of people that have gotten so despondent at some time in their life that they just felt life was completely over, whether it was a divorce or whether it was something of failure, whether it was something that happened really bad, a death of somebody that you cared about, something that really made you feel like you had no light forward, when you look at those events, what was it in you that made you keep going? Why not just end your life? Why didn't you end your life? And that comes from the process of allowing people to be buffeted by the wind. It's part of the process of allowing kids, young kids to fail so that when they fail at things, they don't think that everything is vested in what this high school says. I've failed at this and this and this and this. You know, I remember failing at making the football team in seventh grade and it devastated me. I mean, I'm a pretty good athlete and I didn't make it. And I really hated that. I went to my dad and I said, come on, you, know, you should go and complain. He says, no, you got to work that out. And it never made me feel good and I hated that. But there's been a lot of times in my life that one event getting cut from the football team. I'm talking seventh grade, what a wuss. You know, like seventh grade. But that stayed with me and my failure became my story. It became my strength. And there are, there are 10 things like that. But as kids are allowed to get buffeted, it gets much easier. I've often said that I believe that one of the gateways to the drug use right now of a lot of teens is parents that haven't allowed the kids to begin to feel failure and to feel the difficulties of life 
so that they can recognize that there's a horizon in the distance. And so they're always looking to feel good. And if their friends are all feeling good, taking Oxycontin, well, that's good. Let's, that's fun. I want to feel good. And if, that, if there's a cheaper way to do that by shooting heroin, you know, then let's shoot heroin. And that's not, that used to be a, a scummy thing in my day. Anybody that would put a needle in their vein, well, I found them on my beach in our community. You know, needles that kids are using. So, I mean, it's out there. And I know high school teachers at our local teacher, at local schools, that there are kids, there's a lot of kids using. And many of them have just had it, it's just bland. They really don't know what they want to do. They don't, they don't really have a sense of passion to drive because they've really never been let to find their own program. And that begins at two and three and four and five, right? Finding their own program, letting them feel that difficulty. Better to let them fail at something now than for you to wake up two or three years from now and realize, wow, you know, maybe I could have let them fail here and stopped what became a real problem later, which might be drugs or suicide or any of that. So, yep. Hi, thanks for being here today. Thank you. Um, so I have kind of a, a question but comment, um, and I think it's also about something that we all see a lot of kids doing. Um, and I think it's correlational to entitlement, which is an anxiety-provoking things for kids. But um, I see a lot of kids in my, my son's class who's like second grade, first grade who have iPhone watches. And when I ask the parents why they're giving their kids these iPhone watches, they say for so they feel safe. Right. You know, I'm just a call away. And when my son says, I want my I want one of those and I want my phone like that, I want to be able to call you and of course maybe his friends because they have one too. I say, I don't want you to call me during the day. I say, you know, <laughs> not that I don't love you, but I and then I explain to him that I went away to college and when I had to like contact my parents for advice, I had to pick up a payphone yeah. or I had to write a letter. And he that says, exactly, <laughs> of course. <laughs> so what can you say to us as parents? And, and, and I'm not sure if that's the right response to my son, but we're, I want them to feel secure and safe, but that's not, I don't want them to feel it through this. Yeah. yeah. I, I would say the over comment for me is practice not having. You practice not having. In other words, one of the things we do is we always have kind of everything we want. I can have it, I can afford it, so I have it. And I think about it, I'm going to go get it, so I'm gonna, I have it. And your kids see that, and your kids see other kids doing that. And so I often encourage people to practice verbally and out loud. Dad could have another surfboard. I've got three. I could buy one a week, and I probably would like to. <laughs> But dad could have another surfboard, and I just am not going to do it because I just don't want to have it. I just don't want to have it. And I've watched that happen where it gets easier with time, where parents model that. And they say, look, it, mom could have the new Range Rover. Are you willing? But I'm not going to have it. And to the kids, mommy and daddy could do this. Mom and dad could do this. But we're not going to do it because it's good sometimes just not to have it. And it sounds so contrary. It sounds so strange. But a lot of families that do that on an ongoing basis turn to the kids and say, hey, mom and dad, you know how we practice not having things. We just we don't have everything that we want to have. Well, you could. doesn't matter. We feel it's good for us not to have, and we, are, we don't want you to have that watch. It's not about safety. It's about we don't want you to have that. And the same thing is coming with a car, right? I mean, 
that's a big deal here where you know people buy 16 year olds new cars and then it's a question of what type and how expensive and what's everybody else getting and all that and you don't want to shame your kid by going to used car but i'm telling you that there's an incredible attempt by parents to transfer pride that you guys gained having your own car and what it felt like to be that way and you earned it you did all this stuff you got to a place where you had your own your own thing your own eye watch whatever it was and you think that by buying that for your kid, they're gonna feel as proud as you did. And I'm kind of jumping to the car issue now. And then you find out that your kid doesn't take care of it and they don't, you know, they don't clean it and they put garbage in the back and they haul their kids and friends around in it and don't charge for gas because you're paying for gas. And you wind up getting aggravated at them because they don't have the same pride that you did in your car. The reason is they didn't earn it. And again, as a parent, you've got to step back and say, you know, you've got to do something to earn that. I am not going to do that. Now, now comes in the issue of what do you do to have them earn it? There's a much better lesson in, to me, just not having it. The earning is a little bit kind of a surreptitious way of getting around to what you want to do for them, and that's give them that watch, what they want. Sometimes the idea of teaching them they're not going to get stuff. And in this, some of the most successful families in town that I've seen have denied their kids new cars or cars at all, right when they turn 16. And gosh, they get, the kids come home and go, oh my God, I'm just disgraced. Everybody's talking about me, they're laughing about me. But the truth is, is that parent is strategically working on a principle. It's not about your pride. It's not about you feeling good about what you're doing. It's about what are you working on with your kid to teach them the next lesson. And so if I were sitting with my son and he had to wonder, how, how old is he? Second. Seven. Seventh grade. Wow. No, seven. Seven. Seven, and he wants an eye watch. No, he, he wants it because he sees his friends have it. Yeah. I just think that getting yeah. their kid an eye watch for safety with parent is, is like they're not they need to make decisions on their own. And oh yeah. Their own judgment. Oh, I, you know something? <laughs> There's nothing, and, and again, now I'm going to probably offend some ladies here, but I watch coming out of my community. <laughs> I, I watch moms that walk their you know, 13-year-old daughter, 12-year-old daughter at the bus stop, and they sit there and they hold them like the like the slave trade was watching, you know, their kid, and waiting for that kid to be taken away. And it's like, oh my God, and here on the bus, and okay, go, 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 and shut the door, shut the door, shut the door, you know? And it's like, you know, I used to walk to school when I was in kindergarten, and I learned a lot about that. I learned who not to talk to, and I learned there are weird people in the world, and I learned a lot of stuff by doing that. And I think sometimes, as a parent, you have to step back and really begin to understand, I'm a teacher here. I'm not just some parent that's looking to be rewarded with love at the end. I don't care if you love me. I'm gonna love you anyway, but I'm gonna teach you the right things to do. It is really not easy. The answer to that son is just, I don't want you to have that. Not because I don't want you to be safe, I just don't want you to have that. And, that, and I'm the bad person and I'm willing to take that heat and everyone else can have one, but not only you're not going to have it now, but you're not going to have it for a long time. You know, something like that. It's hard. It really is hard. Are we ready to wrap? Are we? Anybody else before we? Good. Hey, thank you so much, everybody. Again, I enjoy it.